Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. If you have your Bible, please, 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 please open uh, the Word of God up to James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you have your phone, that's cool too. Use your Bible app, Google it, just don't like surf the web, you know, watch YouTube videos uh, during my talk. Um, other than that, it's all good. James 4, we're going to actually start in verse 1. If you're a, a if you're here for the first time, um, just want to welcome you. My name is Chad. Awesome to have you here today. Um, I believe that there is a promise in the Word of God here for you. Doesn't matter of of how you come into this place. I believe that if you would press into the Word as you see it here, this gets to the depths of every single one of us. And if you if you want to change, if you want to allow Christ to change things in your life, this is the message for you. But if you do not want to have Christ change your life, this is going to be the most miserable 45 minutes of your week. But because this text is all about change, and I'm so glad that this, this letter that was written to a bunch of scattered believers, believers who were relatively new in the faith, believers who were off in foreign lands, believers who were just trying to live a Jesus ethic in a non-Jesus world, and amen, that's kind of happening right now. And all of this letter as James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, as this was sent out, he's giving them a promise and giving us a promise. He says, if you want to see significant change, spiritually speaking, in your life, this is a great place to start. And I'm so glad that the Bible isn't just full of a bunch of abstract truths and just a bunch of peripheral things. The Bible speaks into our exact situation. And every one of us has come into with come into this place with this. Every single one of us. I don't care if you're a, if you're a Christian, not a Christian. If you said like you're here today and you're wondering why you're here and you left the church ten years ago and you said I'm never going to return and you were bribed to be here today. That's awesome. I'm glad you're here. We need to trick people more often to come into into the house of the Lord. I don't know if that's right or not, or even biblical. But I said it, so there it is. And so I, I just think it's amazing that if if you want to see change, there's change that's possible. And when you come into this place, and no matter how how you came into this place, all of us comes with this idea of how do, we, how do we deepen our relationships? How can we make all of our relationships better? And are there, are there some telltale signs in our life that, kind of, that we can use as identifiers to see which way that our hearts are leaning? But I'll start with this story. A friend of mine um, several years ago, when, when we were in uh, ministry in Florida, I, a good friend of mine, his name was Adam. I mean, he was a tall dude. It's not really saying much when you're 5'7", but I mean, he was like 6'2". He was thick. He looked like, I mean, he was he just looked like that guy. He looked like he could totally just like go bear hunting, like with the slingshot, you know, like David style, you know, with Goliath, like all of that. He was that guy. You got a picture of that? He's tatted up. He's tough. I mean, he wears a shirt like, you know, a size too short. I mean, it was amazing. He was just... He looked apart. He's tough. Great guy. Heart for Jesus. He, he told us a, a story. He actually told me the story a couple of times that he had this opportunity to go mountain lion hunting, which I don't know why in the world you would want to go mountain lion hunting. But this, this story, he had an opportunity to go up to the Pacific Northwest to go or up in, in the West to go uh, – mountain lion hunting and he said it was like typical thing they started they were doing some just stalk hunting and they were kind of you know look for sign and all of that and then there was a time in this trip and it was a guided uh, guided trip and there was this this time the guide said okay we're going to follow this trail and they noticed that eventually that the trail actually led to this cave and it was, you know, it's one of those things like the, the human side says, okay, mountain lion not in the open, me, big man, going into a cave, not a good idea. That's awesome. Yeah, we saw some tracks. Let's go home and, you know, let's make some s'mores or do something. You know what I mean? It's like, humanly speaking, that's kind of what you would think that would happen, but that's not what did happen. He went through and he said, well, man, I'm, I'm here on this hunt to go and get a mountain lion. I know that there's a mountain lion in here. So he took all of his big girthy self and he actually went into this cave. Now, went into this cave like army crawling style. Went in with nothing but a weapon and a flashlight. 
and a hope and a dream. I mean, I don't know what else you go in with. But he went in with that and went back into this cave. And the cave, it started out at normal height, but then it got more narrow and narrow and narrow. And when he actually got to the place where, where he, he really, it was kind of like a, a pass or fail place, that the, the cave, it, it actually went down so far that it was actually touching on both sides of him. And he had to decide in that moment, I'm either going to be all into this thing, I'm either going to hunt it or it's going to hunt me. And he pressed in through it, actually flashlight, got the animal, all of that was taken care of. He lived to tell the story over and over and over. You know, it's one of those amazing things. But in that moment, something very significant happened. In that moment, something crossed in his mind and he says, wow, I came in the hunter. But there was a point in that journey where he felt like he was the hunted. So he went in as the hunter, like, man, I, I've got this taken care of. I've got a weapon. I've got this guy who's trained, uh, you know, and telling me everything I need to do. I'm in the right situation. I'm going in as the hunter. But in that moment when he was exposed and he was kind of spelunking going into that cave, he felt like the hunted. And I have to tell you, there's going to be a part of this text that you're going to feel like the hunted. You're going to feel this, this pushback within you like, no, 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 that's not my story, that's somebody else's story. Or there's going to be some of you who just go through and you say, yeah, I totally see how that would be lived out. And I remember when that was lived out in someone else. And you could be tempted to put that in a box and push that away from you and pretend that that would never happen to you. But if you do that, you will lose the ability to see significant change. And that's one of the promises of the gospel. It's not just eternal life. It's not just heaven. It's abundant life. And part of the abundant life that Christ Jesus promised was change. But sometimes we go from the hunter to the hunted. Because we do have an adversary, don't we? This is what the word says. Continuing right in the flow of last week's talk where I talked about wisdom and and, and the, the type of man's wisdom and earthly wisdom. And he said, if, you, if you're just following under man's wisdom, he says, there's two things that, that he guarantees us that will happen if we're just walking under man's wisdom. He said, you will find disorder in every evil practice. So now he presses into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Ask this questions. Ask these questions, rather. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There are so many promises that I've just read to you. Then he says in verse 11, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So there's, there's difficulty in some relationships that James is addressing. 
There's some difficulty and James is kind of pressing into them. And he's not just saying, okay, you guys just settle down. You guys settle down. He's not doing the, the you know, the, the, the peacekeeping method where it's just like, well, if you guys just be quiet and you guys can't, can't you guys just get along? He's not doing that. He's looking at all of them and perhaps I'm, I'm looking at you maybe through the lens of the scripture and saying, what is it that leads you to have slander towards one another? What is it that, as James says in verse 1, it causes you to fight and to quarrel? Because James asked this question. He says, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So when there's difficulty in your relationships, you should ask yourself, is it because there is something in the, uh, something of my desire that's not being met to my satisfaction? This is what he says. I have uh, this I kind of drew from verses 1 through 2, and there's some fill-in-the-blank in your worship guide for this. Corrupted desire disrupts relationships. Corrupted desire disrupts relationships. Or runaway desire. Runaway desire disrupts relationships. Runaway desire. Desire itself is not a bad thing. God has put in all of our lives to desire things, to desire intimacy in marriage. God put that in us. That desire is healthy. That's good. Our desire is, is for you. If you, you just have this longing and desire to have children, to raise godly children, that desire He put in you. There's a desire for us to eat, and He's actually even given us the ability to, to enjoy the food that we eat. That's a desire that He's put in us. He's given us this desire to be known by God and to know God more intimately. He put that in you. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't like an afterthought after he'd made everything else and he's like, oh man, if I would have just told, oh, here's what I'll do. I'll just, God doesn't make messes that he has to clean up. Everything that God does is orderly. He has put in you desires. But when those desires run away, we know that they, dis- that they disrupt our relationship. And that's what he says here. He goes through. And he talks about fighting and quarreling. So this, there's strife between people. He says, you kill and you covet, but you do not have what you want. You quarrel and fight. I love it all in this, this passage. How many times he says, you, you, you. He's, he's driving it to a personal level. He's not saying them. He's saying you. So when you read it, he's writing it in the tense that we need it. He says, you quarrel and you fight. No one is exempt. And he says, you don't have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You ask with the wrong motives. So some of us, we we struggle and we struggle with anger. Because someone hurt you and yet you reacted because in that moment you wanted respect and yet they, they did something that disrespected you and you responded with anger. And let's just be really, really honest. We're better at inflicting pain than unfeeling pain, aren't we? We're better at, at, at just like just sending it somewhere else and inflicting pain on someone else than it is to unfeeling pain. And if we don't be careful, that could lead us to a runaway desire that disrupts all other relationships. Pride. Someone challenges your insight or your knowledge. You're at work and somebody challenges your expertise and you kind of rev up and you puff yourself up because you feel disrespected. The runaway desire of that is this. says, oh, now you have to try and prove how you're better than them, how you know more than them, that, that you use the excuse of you have more credential than the person that you're talking against. And that is a symptom that there's a runaway desire. And what it's doing is it's running away with your ability to influence in that relationship. It's running away with that. We covet. Someone has something and... And, and it threatens you, and somebody says something, maybe does something to threaten your tiny little kingdom. So what you do is, then you try and you react, and you, 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 you have this desire for things, and yet you, now you're trying to control everything. 
Because you feel like you're about to lose something. So now you're not going to give. You're not going to pour into someone else. You're going to kind of covet everything in your life. It happens at all ages and all stages. Someone has a better life than you. And you have this desire for, for a better life, an abundant life. We all do. But when that desire runs away, and it runs away from God, we start envying them. And now we can't live our own life because we're trying to live somebody else's. These are all symptoms of runaway desire. There was somebody, uh, a guy by the name of Cicero, pretty sweet name. He lived during the, in between the time of the, um, the Old Testament and New Testament. And that, that period of time is called the intertestamental period. And he said this, It is insatiable desires which overturn not only individual men, but whole families, and which even bring down the state... From desires there spring hatred, schisms, discords, seditions, and wars. Desire is at the root of all evils which ruin and divide men. The same thing would be true in your life and in your relationships, in your family, in this government, or the way that our government then has relationships with other people. And it's the same thing that is this corrupted desire is leading ISIS to do what ISIS is doing. It's a corruption of desire. And that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. That's where all that started. And it became corrupted. But if we're followers of Jesus, we're called to live a new command. This is what we're told in John 13, starting in verse 34 and 35. This will be on the screen. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6 says this. Perhaps this was read at your wedding. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Above all, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So most of this talk is going to be spent in the second point. And the second point that you fill in in your worship guide is there are telltale signs of runaway desire. I didn't really leave you a lot of space to write these six things that are coming up in your worship guide, and I do apologize. But I would say for you, if you want to change, or you want to help someone else change, or you want to maybe evaluate your relationships, evaluate your motives, run it through the filter of these six things. And these would all be telltale signs of desire. I'm going to kind of fly through them and then I'm going to give you a couple real life examples as how we see these things work out. First one is this, just desire. The first one, they all begin with D. It's my inner Baptist coming out, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm not a Baptist, but I just said it. Um, I was Baptist trained. So the first one is desire. And we all have desire. There's nothing wrong with, with desire. Desire is, at the core of desire, desire is good. Desire itself is, you just desire something, but yet we're told in Proverbs 19.2 that desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So just desire itself can't always be trusted, because your heart will deceive you. As a matter of fact, I said this earlier this week, the, the, the person who lies to us the most is ourselves. The person who lies to us most is ourselves. We have these desires that rev up in us, but if we have no, uh, rather, but we need to have some knowledge. And the, the Word of God informs us and lets us know. And it informs us, gives us this, the knowledge to say, is this a desire that, that, that I'm going to be built up in Christ, or is this a desire that is meant to tear down relationships, destroy my marriage, destroy my health, destroy my work ethic, destroy other things? Life is not lived in a vacuum. Not all desire is sin, but every desire can lead to sin. 
Not every desire is sin, but every desire can lead to sin. Second thing is this. So it starts with desire. The second one is domination. These are things that just, it just seeps its way into your mind. Perhaps things you, that you had said maybe 10 years before, I will never do that. But all of a sudden you have this desire. And these are telltale signs of runaway desire. These are corrupted desires. These are not godly desires. These are desires that will disrupt your relationship. It leads to, it leads to discord. It leads to dis, just disassembling everything in your life relationally that has been built up. A marriage, relationship with your kids, all of this. But it starts with this level of desire. The second one is domination. And that's when, the, it, that's when these desires start to dominate your thoughts. This is the f- really the first telltale sign that things are about to go south. They're about to go south. This is it. just things you start to dwell on some things. I'm going to give you some examples of this. Third one is this. Giving all the principles, then I'm going to filter through the examples. The third one is this, dreaming. Dreaming. This is when you've, it's desire, domination. Now the dreaming stage is, it just, you don't even have to like dwell on in thought. You can just be just daydreaming and all of a sudden these thoughts just kind of float through your mind. This shows a different level that you've allowed this to kind of seep into a different level of your heart. This is a wonderful telltale sign for you to say, hey, I have, some, I have some disruption that's about to happen in my relationships, my relationship with God, my relationship with other people. These are telltale signs. So dreaming. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but all, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Perhaps you want to write that passage down, 1 Corinthians 6. 12. Because when the human will is enslaved to a desire, it in turn enslaves the mind. When the human will is enslaved to a desire, it in turn enslaves the mind. This is why if you just allow these, this, the telltale sign, you allow these desires just to kind of float and they kind of dominate your mind, you start daydreaming about them. You start dreaming about them. They just kind of flood your mind out of the blue. You'll be driving down the road, have nothing to do with that situation, and these things kind of flood through your mind. Almost like you start building fantasies. This lets you know, now my mind... My mind is starting to formulate some things, which leads to the fourth stage is development. This is when you start creating imaginary schemes about how to have it and how to keep it. This is when you're kind of you're going through these imaginary schemes. Well, how can I have that? How can I how can I keep that? You're not taking into account any effect it's going to have on relationships. You're not thinking about that at all. Now in your mind, you start making plans. In this moment, you've allowed this to kind of take root in your heart. Now, this desire has run away. The fourth point of this, the fourth level of this, in development, now you're trying to create imaginary schemes on how you can have it and how you can keep it. The fifth one is this, defiance. Defiance. You're boldly defiant. You resist listening to other people's input. Your family and your friends, they warn you. They tell you not to. But their, but their desire, the person's desire, has conceived into sinful action. This is how desire turns into, into sin and how the sin takes root in your life. This is how it happens. And it happens this way every single time. And when it gets to this level, to the defiant stage, this is the thing that you said 10 years ago that would never happen, and now you're defending something that you said would never happen. Now, when you're trying, when you get wise counsel from godly people, and they're trying to confront you with the word and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, this is what I see in your life, and it doesn't measure up with the scripture, you argue with them, you fuss and you fight, and all you're doing is you're putting up a front, trying to protect 
that runaway desire and trying to defend those sinful thoughts, the sinful desires, then now you're using defiance and you're pushing other people away. So now you are being held captive to this sin. You're being held captive. The sixth one and final one is this. Devastation. Devastation. And unfortunately, if I'm really honest, this is the stage that I usually find people. Because this is the stage, they've gone through the first five and they were totally oblivious. And they made it through the first five and they kind of tracked on through life. And now they're looking around and they're lonely. They've, they've run everybody else off. Everything's a mess. Their kids don't know their name. Their husband or wife is out of the picture. And now their life is an absolute mess. And now they knock on my door. And they want, the past, they want to spend 45 minutes with the pastor for the pastor to fix the last 30 years of their corrupted life. And they're always disappointed because I can't. But the devastation side, it does have the effect, as it says here, of a runaway train on a marriage or an extended family, unexpected kids, and really anyone downhill of their sin. Anyone. Now, I'm going to run through this through a couple of, of examples using these six things. This is a Krispy Kreme donut. And it's good. This is a Krispy Kreme donut. I'm going to talk with my mouth full. My mom's not here, so it's all right. It tastes really good. I have a desire for pleasure through food, right? I mean, does anyone just like really enjoy food? It's all right. Do you really enjoy? Can we all be honest today? I mean, seriously. No, I hate food. I eat cardboard. Come on. Yes, thank you. And Spencer with two hands up. Sweet. We all have a desire for food. We, we love food. That's one of God's greatest graces to us is, is the ability to enjoy food. Now, Here's the way this pans out. All right, so we have desire. It's all good. We all have it. Now, if I, if I just have this desire, I'd be like, oh, man, you know what? I want a Krispy Kreme donut. Oh, man, I just, I really, I just want the Krispy Kreme donut. It just melts in your mouth. Like the hot now thing, boom, boom. I can, can you see it? Like you drive by the sign, the hot now, and you're like, hot now, like, got to have it, starts to dominate your mind. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, Krispy Kreme, man, that's, whew, love the Krispy Kreme. All of a sudden, you're just, you know, you can like close your eyes. You're singing a song. You're driving down the road. You're like, mm, man, I just love a Krispy Kreme. So now you're dreaming about it. It's weird, right? About a Krispy Kreme. Don't judge me, though. You've done the same thing, okay? Don't judge me. Now what we do is, in the development stage, stage four, now the development stage, now we're like, there's not a Krispy Kreme here in Dublin. There's one in Macon. So, do I need to go to Macon? No. Do I want to go to Macon? Yeah. So all of a sudden, what happens is your mind has kind of run away with it now. And now you're thinking, wow, I'm going to make some plans after work today. I'm a little bit tired, but after I, work, after I go to work today, I'm going to get off work and I'm going to drive to Macon. Oh, I've got some shopping to do. Sure you do. Right off of Eisenhower at, uh, at Krispy Kreme. And bloop, 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 hot now is calling you in. And now you're making plans. So now you're developing a plan of how you're going to get the Krispy Kreme, Right? But then your husband, your wife says, you don't really need a Krispy Kreme. We've been on this like this not this lifestyle change diet thing. You really don't need that. And you sit back and say, you know what? This is, this is step to five. This is the defiant side. Step five is this. You know what? I have ate good all week long. I deserve a Krispy Kreme donut. Right? Is there anything wrong with that so far? Not necessarily, but if you, if you 
allowed yourself to run away with this desire over and over and over again, it leads to devastation. It leads to what? It leads to diabetes. It leads to a lot of health issues, maybe some heart issues, maybe some obesity. It leads you to a mess, right? That would be step number six. That's a pretty safe example. Um, pretty safe example. But let me ask you this. Let's view this through a marriage. Let's view this through the marriage. You desire, you have a longing for companionship, right? So say maybe this is your desire, and we have it. It's great. We desire to, to be known and, and, and to be intimate with someone else. And yet, what happens if you go through a season where there's like a lack of intimacy in your marriage, right? Just a lack of intimacy. I'm not talking about necessarily physical intimacy. I'm talking about all levels of intimacy. So what happens? All of a sudden, that desire is not being met. So, in yourself, what you, what you start to... The, the domination is, uh, the, the, the second stage is now, it's in your thought. You're like, wow, I really, I have this desire that's not being met. And I don't know why that they're not doing what I want them to do. And we're not as close as what we used to. We're just not happy anymore. These are the type of words that are used. We're just not happy anymore. She just doesn't make me happy anymore. He just doesn't make me happy anymore. This is just so burdensome. Why does marriage have to be so much work? Now you start, this is now this level of desire. Now it's deep within you, and now because of all of the uh, of the emotions that are tied into it, now your eyes turn away from your spouse, and now that person at work that you said that repulsed you two years ago, now you look at that person, and you're having a discussion over the water cooler, and now that person you kind of strike an interest with, and you're like, oh, you know what, they're actually more friendly than I thought they were. They're, they're a lot more friendly than I thought they were. They're a lot more friendly than my spouse. So now, in your mind, the domination side of it is, you're thinking. You're thinking. But then you're sitting at your desk, maybe your cubicle, your toolbox, and now you start dreaming about it. You're like, oh man, I wonder what life would be like with them instead of my spouse. Now you're dreaming. Now you're dreaming. And you know, how hap- you know how fast that happens? Like that. It happens that fast. So, after this, the dreaming side, now you start the development side. You start making some plans. You start making plans. You've, this is when the desires completely run away. And now, in your mind, you believe that that person is going to give you more satisfaction than the one you made covenantal vows to. And now you start making plans about how you can spend just a little bit more time. Maybe go to dinner with them. Maybe you could sit and have lunch with them at work. And it seems harmless because it's at work and and they're at work and you're at work. And now you're sitting with them at a table and you're having lunch with them. And you're having discussions with them. And you're making plans and you're developing more plans of how you can continue those kind of conversations with them. And then one thing leads to another. And now you've made plans to spend an overnight, just a short distance away with this person. And no one is oblivious. No one. No one. So now you're developing plans. But a friend comes up to you and says, hey, whoa. This is somebody who, who is your friend. I mean, they've been through it with you and they've loved you and they've supported you. And they come up to this, this, this time and they come up to you and they say, man, hey, you've got a husband at home. You've got a wife at home. You don't need to be talking to them. It, the, I, just, I see your conversation with them and I see the way you kind of light up and I see the way you kind of go to the mirror before you walk by their cubicle. I just see how you kind of, you, you kind of strut a little bit. Maybe you suck it in and you kind of puff it up when you walk by there. I, just, I notice how you're kind of doing all that. It's because you're trying to have that other person 
Or you're trying to get that other person's attention. And when we start become defiant is when one of our friends that we have loved who's walked through stages of life with us, but now we're defying that. And now they come up to us and they tell us what we're doing. And we say, no, I'm doing just fine. You don't know what I'm going through at home. You don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what she's done to me. You don't know the mess of our finances. You don't know all that I've gone through. You don't know this. And besides that, they, the other person, makes me happy. So now you're at step five. You're defiant. Now you're pushing away the very person who God could be sending to bring his message of grace to you to say, hey, brother, sister, it's not too late. That person, now you're defying them. You're pushing them away. And then they cross through my door and the devastation side. Their life's a wreck. But oftentimes... It's the person left behind that comes through my door. And they're begging for something to help the person come back. My, my heart's desire, and, and really the root of this text, is that you would see life through the lens of these six things. That you would, that you would see your life, that you would, you would just allow it to evaluate your emotions, your thoughts, your heart's desires through the lens of these six things. Not that I don't mind you coming in to visit, but I would much rather get a praise report than a devastation report. But, verse 4. In the text, James 4, verse 4, he uses this term, you adulterous people. Now, this... This may seem like if you're not a church person and, and all of that, maybe you, you're just kind of coming back or you know, you're a church person a long time ago and you came back here today. You, you hear these terms and this could be like, wow, what is this talking about? What he's talking about here in the, film, uh, the blank that you have in your worship guide is we are to be in a committed covenantal relationship with Christ. We are. We are in a committed covenantal relationship with Christ. So when it says, you adulterous people, these kinds of words were, were really talked about in Isaiah 54, 1 through 6, Jeremiah 2, 2 talked about this. There's a whole book of the Bible, Hosea. His life was a living illustration of, of this very principle. Um, if you want to have your mind blown, read that text. And uh, Paul spoke into this too. And now James is... In the New Testament, rather, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told to live completely separated from everyone else. That everyone else was bad, we need to just hold to our own, be part of your own. But the game changed in the, in the New Testament. We are committed covenantial, in committed covenantial relationships with Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are in a committed covenantal relationship. One that is bound, that cannot be unbound. And part of this is understanding that in the New Testament that we, we operate under a different life ethic. We're not just to live separate from the world. God has sent us on mission to help redeem the world. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. If you have your Bible, go to Matthew 5. Hold your place in James real quick. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, starting at verse 13 through verse 16. Christian, this is, this is the orders that we're to be living under. This is not just living separate from the world. That's not even the point of James' text here, that we're supposed to just live separate from the world and just hate the world and judge the world. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Then he says this in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives life to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. These are the orders 
that we're to be living under. These are the things that Christ has told us to do. Not to live completely separated, churning our own butter, communities separated from the rest of the world, but He has sent us on mission to invade the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're an extrovert, if you're an introvert, if you're passionate about local missions or foreign missions or the local church. He has sent us on mission, every one of us, to be invading dark places with the light of the gospel. And we do that because we are in a committed, covenantal relationship with Him. And the term that James uses, when we get this wrong, he says, you adulterous people, he says, you're cheating on me. You're, you're living a life less than what I've promised. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Verse 4. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies itself? He says, come on. You're supposed to be living on, on mission, glorifying Jesus, sharing the light with other people. He says that He is bound to you and you are bound to Him. You are no longer of yourself. You, if you're a Christian, you are a blood-bought Christian. The third takeaway from this text, it follows this one. And the fill in the blank you see in your worship guide is His grace draws near. His Grace draws near. I love it. Look at look what it says in verse 6. So right after he talks about all these things, about the, the fighting and the quarreling, and it talks about the rooted desire and all of those things and the, the things that I've unpacked for you, he says, but he gives us more grace. Why is this so important? Because he's saying that, that Christ gives us something that the world cannot give us. Grace. That means when you fail, his grace is sufficient to hold you. You can't fall away. Jesus, if, you, if you're a follower of Christ, you can't just fall away uh, just into oblivion. That he holds you by his great grace. His grace draws near. He says this grace opposes the proud, but he gives Grace to the humble. But he gives more grace. Maybe in your Bible you just need to be reminded of that. Maybe you, maybe you struggle with, with some identity. You're like in, in an identity crisis. You just need to underline more. He gives you more grace. He gives you more grace to sustain you moment by moment, day by day. He gives you more grace than what you even know. His grace doesn't have an end. And His grace draws near. So Christian, if we, if we do what we're supposed to with this desire, we surrender those desires to Christ. And, and now, because we do so, because we're in a committed, covenantal relationship with Christ, that we can't get too far away, we can't run away, His grace sustains us. Understanding that His grace draws near to us and holds us. Then, when we get that right, starting in verse 7, we're going to fly through this last section. The fifth thing to fill in is this to, it's for the purpose of recovering broken relationships. For recovering broken relationships. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, because of this great grace, because of this more level of grace, because of the grace that's been poured out to you, Christian, because there's, there's so much grace waiting for you, Christian, because you can't fall away from Christ, Christian, because He sustains you, Christian, because you can have assurance of salvation, Christian, because of these things. He says, understand this, that this grace is something that doesn't mean that you can just live for your, your own way, you can allow this runaway desire and just live for your happiness, because that is not the promise of the point of the gospel living for your happiness is the way of the world not the way of Christ but if you're in a committed covenantal relationship because you have surrendered your life for in, in exchange for the better life that Christ the abundant life that Christ offers he says and you want to recover all broken relationships he says do this submit yourselves then to God he says because you have this grace submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. 
and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So if you want to recover some broken relationships, first thing is this. Submit yourself to God. Submit your will to God. Submit your heart to God. Allow the Holy Spirit to kind of sift through you and say, Why do I want this? Why am I thinking this? Why am I saying this? And allow, just submit it to God. Say, God, through your Holy Spirit, please just sift through this whole situation. Let this only be of you. I don't want this runaway desire to take root in my life. I don't want the steps to kind of trickle down. I don't want the devastation for myself, for my family, for my kids. I want my kids to, I want my grandkids to have a relationship with me. God, is this, is this decision right now going to lead me farther away from the from the promise of abundant life, or is it going to lead me closer to the promise of abundant life? Submit yourself to God and you do so because He is the promise maker and He is the promise keeper. You break promises. Don't you? You said things like, God, if you will only help me in this situation... God, if you'll only help me in this... If you, if you will just help me in this situation, then I will... Fill in the blank. God, please show up in my marriage. I know that I have been derelict in my duties to, to, to shepherd my family well for the last 15 years. But God, if you do this right now, then I will. And if we're honest, the things that we said that we would do, we'd probably have fallen short in. So the better thing to do is understand this, this promise in the Word of God. He says, if you submit yourselves then to God, you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Look at that promise. He says, you, re- you resist the devil. You turn away from the devil. You turn away from those runaway desires. You turn away from those, those damaging relationships. You turn away from those emotions that are just eroding the relationships around you, the runaway anger and the envy and the coveting and the greed. He says, you run away from those things and you submit yourselves to God and you turn away. You turn away. Because God is the promise maker and He is the promise keeper. He says, and then if you come near to God, He says that God will come near to you. I don't know about you, but I mean, that gives me goosebumps. The thought that a loving God, even in in all of my mess, in my, my brokenness, in my baggage, that there's a loving God who pursues me on an individual level. That I can't do anything that causes God not to love me because His Son already died for me and proved the greatest measure of that love. The next one you see is talking about the heart. Talking about the heart right from this text. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking about repentance. That's the internal side of it, saying this kind of the things that I just kind of spoke to you. Just repenting, the the turning away, saying, God, I I know that your way's better. I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to turn away from the devil. That is the effort of repentance. We have to do that internally and externally. We have to, we have to submit to God, but to, in order to submit to God, you have to deny the devil. You can't have both. Look what, he, look what James says in this text. He says, you double-minded. He says, you're trying to have it both ways. You're trying to meet all of your individual needs, and then you're asking God to bless your mess. The fifth thing you see on the screen is the idea of reconciliation. This is the hands part. This is, after you've repented internally, you've repented of the things that you've done and the ways that you have violated the the law code of God and all the things that God has promised to you and God's wanted for you and longed for you. This in this moment is, is when you have to have the necessary, listen to me, church, this is when you have to have the necessary conversation after your conversation with Jesus. And this one is... It's just as important as the one previous. 
This is the one where you have to humble yourself before someone else and say, I blew it. Or go before them and say, I don't know what I have done, but I apologize if I've offended you. I don't know what I have done, but I believe in my heart that I have done something wrong against you. And allow that person to speak into your life. That's the reconciliation part. And the part I think, we, we, you hear the first four all the time. And when I studied this out, I thought to myself, wow, we never do number five on this list. We never do this. You see, you see a history of this in the Old Testament. They literally would put sackcloth and ashes. Everyone would know when they were mourning and grieving sin. Everyone would know. And this is the thing, but we just kind of dismiss and we say, I repented and you walk away like nothing happened. But as A.W. Tozer said, hasty repentance leads to shallow revival. Hasty repentance leads to shallow revival. Meaning if you just make quick repentance, be like, oh man, I blew it. And you walk away like nothing happened. We have to understand to a deeper degree, this is the reason why his grace is sufficient, but that doesn't mean it's a license for you to continue to sin. This is the very reason why some of you have been told, and you've sat under churches just like this one, and you believe that you can lose the salvation that Christ has offered to you because of the last five, the, the, the last thing on this list is because there has never been a mourning of your sin. Because it's this idea that Tozer talks about, this hasty repentance leads to shallow revival. It says, oh God, I'm sorry, I blew it, and you walk away like nothing happened. But if you really mourn and grieve your sin, you will understand that that sin and every other sin that you have either, that you have committed intentionally or unintentionally was a violation against God that was punishable by death. But it's a death you didn't have to die. It's a death that Christ died for you. So if we understand grace in the way that James talks about, it should not lead us to more sin. It should lead us to less sin. It should lead us to dig in and submit ourselves continually to the Lord so that we sin less. But yet when we do sin, then we go back with what it says on the screen when we do sin, we go through the filter of these five principles, not neglecting the last one. Because that sin, just like every other one, was punishable by death. Death on a wooden cross. Blood that was shed for you and for me. That is the promise of the gospel.